0: Good morning. It is a blessing and a privilege to be here with you uh, this morning in Great Bend. And uh, as I said, my name is Tony, and I am here today with my family. Um, that's the Thompson family. And my wife, Lori, our eldest daughter, Isabella, is 16. Audrey is 14. About to turn 14, Jed is 10, and Silas just turned 7. And for the last 11 years, um, and, and you guys have been with us from the beginning, uh, the Lord called our family to this part of the world in Southeast Asia, and uh, what is known as the most unevangelized island on earth, where the majority religion. Dominates makes up over 99.99% of of two major unreached people groups that we are praying that we to see a a church planting movement take place there. And so, for these last eleven years, uh, by day I've gotten to serve as a pastor at an international church there, and at night I lead a, a team of other families who are coming alongside national uh, leaders to see a gospel-centered, disciple-making, church-planning movement really transform and multiply among these unreached people groups uh, where we're at. I want to start by just thanking you all for being a part of this with us, for praying for us, for partnering with us financially, for sending teams out there to encourage us and to come alongside and invest in the ministries that we have going out there. It has been an absolute tremendous blessing to have you all with us. Um, 2001, at the time when I was kind of writing this message in 2020. God had me in the book of Zechariah. And I was just in that when all this was going down. And I started thinking as, about coming back to the States. And, and so at that time, it was like 19 years ago when I was writing this in 2020. I was thinking, 19 years ago, this is what we were dealing with. And uh, that's when I first met Jay. And Debbie and Gwen and her family. And uh, it, was, it was 19 years ago. We had September 11th. There were no iPhones back then. Um, that was a complete foreign concept. Uh, well, maybe not in Steve Jobs' mind, but in everybody else's. And, um, and I started thinking, right, that, it just doesn't feel that long ago. Like that does not seem that long ago to me, but it was 19 years ago. And so then I started thinking, well, what was 19 years before that? 1982, right, middle of the Cold War, the time man of the year was the computer. I was like, wow, you know, I was, I was five years old. I can still remember being five years old, you know, and so I, was, I started going, well, what was 19 years before that? 1963, right, assassination of JFK the March on Washington. And then I write, obviously I'm going to go, well, what was 19 years before that? <laughs> D-Day. And then it hit me as I was thinking about this. On a timeline, my birthday is closer to D-Day than it is to two-day. I want you to think about that, especially people of my age, right? Middle of life. And then you can think about that if you're a little older than me. What's your birthday closer to, right? But do that after the sermon. Uh, (laughs) My, but think about that. My birthday was closer to D-Day than it is to two-day. And I had these two overwhelming realizations at this point. One was that my life is not that far removed from history, Right? This is stuff I learned about in school. You know, the, the people that I knew that were there and in that battle have almost all gone to be with the Lord. Right? That was history, but when I look at it in chunks, I'm like, wow, I've already lived that much life here from the time when I was born. The second realization that I hit was that my life is really but a breath. But a vapor. Because that time has gone by so fast, those chunks of 19 years. And it's not slowing down. And so, kind of gave me this perspective a little bit. Like David prayed in the Psalms, right? Teach me, O Lord, to number of my days that I might gain a heart of wisdom. And I think we need, especially in times like this, that wisdom comes from perspective but not just a historical perspective like this but from an eternal perspective and so this morning i want us to take a broad brushstroke through the book of zechariah written in a time of uncertainty of unrest to see these three things that that god is always working towards in whatever in whatever crisis we face. And so the book of Zechariah was written about 65 years after the fall of Jerusalem, about 75 years before Nehemiah uh, returned to rebuild the walls. And at this time, the city is still in ruins. The temple only had its foundation, and there was no desire to complete it. And uh, Jerusalem in no way resembled the city that it once was. The city that I'm sure the kids who had been in captivity their whole lives had heard their parents and grandparents talk about. In fact, many Jews had chosen simply to stay in Babylon in captivity rather than to return to Jerusalem. They just would rather stay in exile. Because there was no protection, no offer of hope or a prosperous future in the city of Jerusalem. Spiritually, the people had turned away from God. They were fearful. They were hopeless. They were joyless. And it was into this heart, into this time of uncertainty and unrest that the Lord speaks through the prophet Zechariah, giving him visions of a coming king and a coming kingdom and calling his people to return to him. And so, the first thing I want us to look at this morning that God is pursuing in this world is a glorious kingdom for all the nations. In Zechariah chapter 2, we, we read about this vision of a man with a measuring line. He says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord and I will be the glory in her midst. So I want us to look at just a, a few aspects of this kingdom. Sorry, the, of this kingdom that we're going to look at this morning. The first one I want us to look at is that this is a, a kingdom without walls. Right, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. And it says it's because of the great number of people and livestock in it. This is the idea of of overflowing abundance, right? That this is a kingdom that cannot be contained. And the implication is that no wall will limit its reign. It's not limited by walls. And we know that Jerusalem is not physically, right? The the eternal city, as maybe many of its former inhabitants at that time used to think of it or see it. But the scriptures make clear it's a representation, we know, of the eternal kingdom that god is establishing and when we think of a kingdom a kingdom is simply that which is under the sovereign authority of its king and we speak of the kingdom of god jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world meaning it was not a geographic or political kingdom but rather he said it was within those who believed in him and so his is a spiritual kingdom that exists in and is expressed through all those who have given their lives and given the authority, surrendered the authority of their lives over to Christ the King. This is the kingdom without walls, where the Lord Himself is the glory in our midst. Right? We know that scriptures, our hope of glory is Christ in us. He is the glory with this. Within its midst, and the wall of fire around her. Right, we know that death itself cannot touch those who are His. No one can snatch us from His hand. He is our eternal protection. The second thing that the book of Zechariah reveals to us is that this kingdom is a kingdom for all nations, it's a kingdom without walls, and it's a kingdom for the nations. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. When the Bible speaks of nations it speaks of people groups groups not simply defined by geographic or political borders but we see in the book of revelation right that this these are people from there will be people from every tribe tongue people and nation gathered around the throne worshiping the lord and our island alone there are 52 of these major unreached people groups these are tribes of people, this of ten thousand people or more, um, that do not have a church in it that is sh- that is of its own people, uh, sharing the gospel with its own people. It was always God's plan. It was always God's plan, from the from the beginning. Um, as, soon as, as soon as the nations first were created after the Tower of Babel, and God calls Abram and blesses him that he may be a blessing to the nations that were just scattered. When Christ ascends into heaven and gathers his disciples and commissions them, is to take the gospel and make disciples of all nations. At the end of the story, what we see, is we see there are people from all nations who are gathered and here we see that this kingdom that God is establishing, this spiritual kingdom, is a kingdom for all nations. And the third, the third aspect that we see of the kingdom in the book of Zechariah is that it is a kingdom that honors and reflects the glory of its king. And there are two things, if you read through the book of Zechariah, that you see that come out is that God is looking for, right, in his people that honor and reflect who he is. And the first of those that we see is a right heart. He's looking for a right heart. Motives matter. In chapter 7, people were looking for the Lord's favor. So imagine the Jewish people, they're in exile. They're in captivity and in exile, and they're praying, and they're fasting, and they're looking for the Lord's favor, but they weren't experiencing So they sent some people to ask to the priest, and they're like, hey, should we keep doing this? Like, should we even keep doing this? It's not working. We're not getting what we were looking for. And so in chapter 7, verse 4, it says, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me and said to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years he says this was it for me that you fasted was it for me that you fasted why do we do the things that we do because motives matter to the Lord scriptures say man looks to the outward appearance but the Lord is looking to the heart Is it to please men? Is that why we do what we do? Right? Is it possible that we do things that look like good things to a watching world in order to gain society's favor or acceptance? This is so common in the context in which we live in the major religion there. Where I've had a number of friends confess to me and openly tell me that their chief motive Is just so that others would see that they're faithful practitioners, that they would gain acceptance by the society. But how about for us, here at the church? Especially in this age of social media, which can so easily become a podium for self-righteousness. So easy to do things or to say things that have the appearance of righteousness, but with motives that weren't actually to be right with God, but to be viewed right by men. To win the approval of others. And into this, God asked the question of us, was it for me that you fasted? Was it really for me that you were doing that? Or is it to gain a blessing Gain God's blessing and again in our context one of the biggest hindrances to the spread of the gospel Is the false teaching of the prosperity gospel Where it warps people to look at God primarily for what he can give to them Materially on this earth rather than point people to Jesus To see what he has already given them spiritually and eternally um, In his kingdom through Christ God is looking at our heart. The second thing that God is looking for in his people that reflect the honor and glory of his king are right actions. Again in chapter 7, later in verse 9 and 10, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And then in chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, he says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. Again, do not devise evil in your heart against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You know we do have injustice and prejudice that has existed throughout this world, wherever there is a minority of people existing with a majority of people. And this is this is a human heart problem. It's not a it's not an American problem. It's not a systematic problem. It's a human heart problem, and we see it. All around the world. I'm sure it's present here, but it is present all around the world. We see in our context overseas, Christian people from minority tribes in our city are regularly denied jobs or denied housing in certain areas. Churches have been burned, pastors have been kicked out of their homes. These things are happening all over but it is into these environments that God calls us, He calls His people, His church, to shine. It's into that kind of oppression that He calls us to shine. Because the kingdom of God honors and it reflects the glory of its King through a right heart and right actions. And two questions, right, that we need to just allow the Lord to ask of us is who is this for? And are you living it? Who are you really doing this for, Tony? Are you just talking about it here? Or are you living it? Is my heart, are our hearts bowed to the king? And is my hand extended in mercy and peace to my neighbor? No matter his race, ethnicity, or religious background, because this is how the kingdom without walls is extended to the nations. In chapter three, we're going to look at the second thing that God is after in these times. And that is a precious redemption for all people. In chapter three, starting with verse one i uh, will go through verse 4. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is just an awesome picture here. I want you guys just to imagine this. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And understanding this precious redemption Right, that God is after, the first thing that we need to see here is that we are all in need of it. We all stand guilty before God because we have here this picture of the high priest, right, Joshua, standing before God in these filthy garments and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him, standing there, just imagine, pointing out the filth of his sin to God. Look at it, look at it, as if God needed a, a reminder of that from Satan Right? But the point here is that if Joshua, the high priest, who alone at that time could, and only by a sacrifice first made for himself, and only one time per year enter into the Holy of Holies, and there he stands in these filthy garments, what about the rest of us? We're all guilty. We're all guilty. The scriptures say that. We are all guilty before God. And I want to ask you, how do we respond to that guilt? Do we allow, it to, do we allow ourselves to be buried in the shame of it? Because Satan's not wrong here. Right? He's not wrong. The Bible says, Romans right, 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the accuser knows that. He would love nothing more than to bury us in the shame of that. Look what you did again. Look really, you, you. Are, you cannot follow the Lord. Look at how you've blown it again. Just standing there ready to accuse, wanting to bury you in the f- shame of that. God couldn't really love you. You're not good enough. Right, he wants to just bury us In the shame of those accusations, do we allow him to do that, or do we deny the guilt? Right? Do we try to try to fight against it, or try to run away from it? Right? Try to ignore that shame completely. A well-known author and philosopher, atheist named Aldous Huxley, once wrote, "Well, I won't read the full quote, but he he talks about him and his friends." He says the way that they discovered to deal with the guilt was by simply ignoring it. Just by ignoring it. Throwing off all all feelings of guilt in in the way that he said to do that. For him, it was the key. But I hope you hear this as the cost. And he said the key to doing that was to simply deny that life had any meaning at all. And then you didn't have to deal with the guilt. You could do whatever you want. This is meaningless. He says that was the key to being his own king, to doing whatever he wanted. But I hope you hear that as the cost this morning. Or do we fight against the guilt? All right? Maybe you don't let it bury you in the shame in the shame of it. Maybe you don't um, try to deny it. But maybe you try to fight against it. Right? We try to justify ourselves, fight against the shame. We try to lay claim to some virtue or something that someone says is virtuous, or we compare ourselves to others. I'm, you know, secretly in our hearts, I'm really a good person, especially compared to what that person did. Or, you know, but when we do that, when we compare ourselves to others to make ourselves feel better, we are just simply following, following in the footsteps of Satan himself. Just in these accusations. Look at how, Sorry. Look at how filthy you are. Right? And we're following in the same footsteps and forgetting that pointing out the sin of another never removes sin from us. Pointing out the wrong of another does not make us right. Instead the scriptures say that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. And instead, there is only one way that sin can be removed from someone. There's only one way that pure garments, pure vestments can be given to someone. And we see in verse four, and the following verses, that is through God himself. And so how does God respond to our guilt? Right? How does he respond to our guilt? We see right away, the Lord rebukes Satan. Right, I love that. He's like, psst, you got no place here. This is not about you. Zip it. And he rebukes him. And then he declares, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And he promises, I will close you with pure vestments. He doesn't listen to Satan. He rebukes him. Because we see God's not after recompense. He's after redemption. And then the angel, right, says to him, remove the filthy garments from him. He said to him, behold, I've taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. In our context, the, the majority religion tells themselves repeatedly that God is merciful, But then they are instructed in all their actions and all their hope then is placed in this hope that our, in this idea that our good deeds must outweigh our bad deeds. And so then they spend their lives trying to feel better about themselves religiously, comparing themselves to others, um, trying to point out how bad somebody else is and, and then how good they are. And, uh, but they know, deep down, that still doesn't remove the sin. It doesn't remove the guilt. But here we see that it is God who is promising to take away the guilt, to remove our sin, right? To forgive it. And sometimes, as you have conversations with people, the idea of forgiveness there is that, that God would just, just wish it away. You know, that that's forgiveness, that it would just be, just kind of like, whew, you're forgiven, as if that sin wasn't there. But if we know what forgiveness really is, right, with the removal of sin costs, it always has a price. It always has a price. And I was sharing this with a, a friend of mine from this religion, and at the time he had just recently had his, his motorcycle stolen from him. And so somebody had stolen his motorcycle and he was dealing with that, but we were having this deep conversation about about spiritual sin, about grace, and why it can only be by God's grace alone that someone could be saved. And we were talking about the issue of forgiveness, and I just said, imagine if the police, they they catch the guy who had stolen your motorcycle at that time, it was about a few weeks prior, and imagine they bring him to you. And I said, Chew, you know Your motorcycle has long gone. It's been sold. And that person's probably blown the money. And so imagine they bring him to you and and they say, we got him. I mean, what are you going to say? You're going to say, I want my motorcycle. Or pay me back for it. And the person's going to say, I can't. I don't have anything that I can pay you back with. That's enough to cover the cost of this motorcycle. Right? I said, "Well, what are you going to do?" The police officer says, "What do you want us to do? You want us to throw him in jail, or or you could forgive him." And I said, "You know, if you forgive him, what's the cost?" And he just says, "My motorcycle." I like, "Yeah, that's the price to forgive him—is your motorcycle. The cost." For God to forgive us was the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That was the payment for our sin. That was the cost of our redemption. And we see that as we look throughout the book of Zechariah. He says we wonder, how is God going to remove our sin? Right There's this promise in verse 4, chapter 3, and then He says, in, in verse 8, later in that chapter, that he will bring forth his servant, the branch. And in verse 9, then he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. One day, one act of God through his servant, the branch, that will remove the sins of mankind. And it says, In that day, the root of Jesse... Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. It is through Jesus, the branch from the root of Jesse, that God will redeem his people from among the nations. By bringing both the natural and ingrafted branches together as one people in Christ, establishing his kingdom Forever. And there are so many prophecies in the book of Zechariah that are pointing, just pointing to this. Famously, in in chapter nine nine, you guys probably just read this a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday. It talks about the humble and righteous King who is coming with salvation. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold! Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In chapter 12, verse 10, the Lord says, They will look on me whom they have pierced. Think of that. That God is saying, They will look on me whom they have pierced. Pointing to the crucifixion. In 13, 7, the shepherd would be struck and the sheep scattered, but it talks about how through that God would purify a remnant, a people for himself. And in Zechariah 6, uh, verses 12 and 13, it talks about a crown being placed on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And it says this, there will be a priest on the throne. There's no longer a king and a priest. There will be a priest king. On the throne. And they said that's who the branch is. In chapter 6. So Jesus Christ. The righteous. Shepherd. Priest. King. He is the branch. Who brings salvation. To the nations. He brings the salvation. To that the nations are in need of. He is the only one through whom our sin can be removed from us because it was him who was pierced for our transgressions to redeem and purify a people for himself from among all nations. And the pure garments that we're clothed with in this vision Right, we see in like 1 Corinthians 1.30 where it says, Christ became righteousness from God to us. And in Philippians 3.9 where Paul prays for righteousness not of his own that comes from the law but the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. We see there that these pure garments that we're clothed with in this vision, this is the righteousness of of God himself, that the scriptures say, come through faith in Christ, the branch whom God brought forth from the root of Jesse. This is the precious redemption that God has planned and purchased for us in Jesus Christ. And as we embrace that, and we embrace the magnitude of his love for us in that, that he did this because he loves you and he wants you in relationship with him. And As that sinks deep into our hearts and as it resonates in our consciousness, we begin to experience the final thing that, that we see in Zechariah that God is after in these times of unrest and despair. And that is a transcendent joy for all people. And the first thing, we're going to show three things about this joy as we close. be brief, the, the first thing is that this joy is found in beholding our King and what He provides for us. Just like we saw in Zechariah 9.9 that we read. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. The cause of our joy and celebration is in the beholding of our king. And we have so much pain and suffering in this world, throughout the world, because we have so much sin in this world, so much injustice in this world. But look, when the king comes, he comes with righteousness and salvation the righteousness and salvation that this world is longing for and he brings this look this is a beautiful picture of how he brings this to us he brings this to us in humility right riding on a colt the foal of the donkey not a war horse he's bringing to this us in humility not demanding our offerings but instead offering himself as the atoning sacrifice for us. And again, if we just pause and we fix our gaze on him and we behold him embracing the truth of this good news, only gratitude and joy are going to fill our souls. And the second thing that we see about this joy is it transforms how we experience life. You remember back in Zechariah 7 when the Lord questioned the motives of His people, of uh, the Jewish people, because they were fasting and weeping and, but still suffering and they were ready to throw in the towel. They're ready to be done. And God asked them, was it for me that you fasted? Listen to what He tells them in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh month and the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, peace, and truth. Those seasons that were full of weeping being transformed into seasons of joy not necessarily because the experience itself is changing right but how we experience it changes our perspective changes it because in the midst of it we embrace the truth and grace of our king we embrace the eternal salvation that he came to bring and this is a transcendent joy we had a young lady who came to faith out of majority religion um, in our context uh, through one of the students at this training center that we started and she was going to get married uh, to another believer and the time had come for her family to find out that she was a believer and they were not happy and her older brother came and literally kidnapped her, took her, put her in the car, drove her three hours out to their village where there was like 30 people in this small little room filled with their religious leaders, their neighborhood community leaders, all their family, extended family, yelling at her, shouting verses from their book at her, telling her that she must reject this Jesus. Jesus. And this 20-some-year-old girl standing in that kind of environment says, how can I reject him? He already lives inside of me. He already lives inside of me. They even tried to poison her to get her to throw up this Jesus that lived inside of her. And her sister, the only reason she knew about that is her sister said to her, How come you didn't throw up? We poisoned you. And so when we see how great it is to have the King, Jesus, living inside of us, there is a transcendent joy that comes from that. And finally, this joy is contagious. It's contagious. In Zechariah 10, 6, and 7, it says, Upon the experience of the salvation that the Lord brings, it says, Their hearts shall be glad as with wine, and their children shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. And we have phrases like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right? How we respond to God's grace in Jesus Christ impacts those around us. Right? It impacts the generations, and it impacts the nations. In ministry, it happens in the context of these kinds of relationships. Pictured here is a friend of my wife's. Uh, my son and their son uh, met and got to be friends. And then Lori and her wife got to be really good friends. And they would meet and they'll bake together and they'll talk together and hang out together. And um, and Lori's just sharing life with her. And this is an Instagram post that she posted about three, four months ago while we were here in the States. And I want to just, I translated this, I'm going to read this to you. It says, this is a dear friend who I really miss. It's, sorry, it's hard to communicate in this context that we live in for someone to say what I'm about to read to you publicly on Instagram. So just, but I want you to just have that peace in your mind This is a dear friend who I really miss. This pastor's wife is so sweet, funny, and has a strong heart. When I am with her, I see life become more beautiful. I learn from her not to depend upon man. She lives her life with so much peace. She's said, yeah, I get afraid, but I know Jesus is watching over me. And I know if I have Jesus, everything else is going to be fine. This is a strong woman. I miss you at laurie.gay.Thompson. Imagine that. If somebody would post that publicly in this context. But that's the kind of impact that we all have can have on the lives of others around us. As we ourselves experience this deep joy in the Lord, experience His grace. Oh, sorry about that. As we experience His grace and the good news of His love for us and what He has done for us, it impacts those around us. And in light of this, I want to close by coming back to this idea of perspective. Right, a few years ago, I was at a, a leadership cohort meeting, and we did an exercise. And I'm going to ask you guys kind of to do a, a version of it. We had everyone stand. I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I want to ask you to raise your hand if you know the name. Of one of your grandparents. Now, if your grandparent has your arm around you right now, you better have your hand up, <laughs> right? Raise your hand if you know the name of one of your grandparents. Okay, now keep them up there. Once you keep them up, don't put them down. See, everybody else got their hands up, so you don't have to be shy. Uh, keep your hands up if you know the name of one, just at least one, of your great grandparents. Okay, There's a few hands that went down. Okay, Keep your hands up if, if, if you still know one of the names of your great-grandparents. Keep your hands up if you know one of the names of your great-great-grandparents. There's still a few, but most every hand went down. Okay, Almost every hand went down. And in this place, we had about 50 or 60 people in the room, and there was only about four hands that were still left. But the point of this is this most of us in four generations your own family won't even remember your name right? in just four generations, think of those 19 year blocks that we just talked about and how fast that's flying by in four generations your own family family, not to mention what you did, what was important to you, right? They won't even remember your name. So what is this life for? What's it for? And I want to submit to you a brief time on this earth. May it be about a glorious kingdom for all the nations, a precious redemption for the nations and a transcendent joy for the nations that is what God has been pursuing in this world and we see those things clear even more clearly in times of unrest and uncertainty we see it even more clearly clearly it's what Jesus came to establish. It's what he commissioned his followers to bear witness to. And we see in Revelation, it is the culmination of history, of his story. And I want to encourage you this morning to look at this brief life that we've been given, this vapor that we are in the midst of, through the scope of eternity through the lens of eternity, and ask God, God, am I living for your purposes or for my own? Am I living for your praise or for my own? For your pleasure or for my own? Because in four generations, right, the only thing that's going to remain of our physical existence on this earth will be you know, ashes and bones but the spiritual investment of our lives towards God's kingdom purposes will last for all eternity C.T. Studd I'll close with this he once said only one life twill will soon be past. only what's done for Christ will last and when I am dying how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the precious redemption that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the joy that fills our souls because your spirit we have been able to behold the king because people preached the gospel to us one day we have been able to behold the king and have been welcomed into your glorious kingdom and god we are here today because we want to be a part of your glorious kingdom growing and expanding Lord, to the generations and to the community around us and to the nations. And I thank you for how you've used this church, how you've used used this body of believers to do just that. And I want to pray that you would continue to do that, Lord. God, that they would be witnesses of your grace in your truth, in their workplaces, in their neighborhoods, in their families and extended families and amongst their friends. Father, I pray for that, that others, through the gospel and through your spirit, their eyes might be open to see and behold the King, to behold you, Jesus. And Father, I thank you for their partnership in the gospel with us for these past 12 years that others on the other side of the world, that their eyes might be open and they might be able to see and they have seen and we pray for more, we pray for a movement of your spirit that more and more people would see how glorious you are, Jesus desperately they need you and that your embrace would just fill them with life and with joy and i just pray for that thank you so much for this church would you bless them father in the name of our lord jesus christ we pray amen